Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Anel Shaleen. Anel is a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. Anel was previously the Zwan postdoctoral fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. Prior to beginning her PhD, she worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen. In addition to academic writing, she's written for the Washington Post, The Nation, Foreign Policy, Politico, and The National Interest. Our conversation today focuses on the term moderate Islam and the extent to which it has been weaponized. Anel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Perhaps we should begin by discussing what is meant by the term moderate Islam because it means different things to different people. So broadly speaking, how should we define moderate Islam? Well, moderate Islam has had a special utility because it remains somewhat undefined. So depending on the context, it can mean a lot of different things. Before 9-11, we tended to hear it used to refer to countries that were willing to pursue peace treaties with Israel, so Egypt and Jordan, for example. But then after 9-11, it became much more closely associated with renunciations of violence. Um, and a lot of Muslims pushed back against that because it implied that Islam needed moderation, that there was something inherently violent about Islam that, had it, that needed to be changed. Um, and so this was why for, for many people, they, they reject the concept of moderate Islam as sort of inherently pejorative towards Islam or, or, or sort of projecting this tendency towards violence, which does not, I want to be clear, does not exist within Islam. And then more recently, especially under the Trump administration, we started to see a shift back towards this willingness to normalize with Israel. Um, such as with under the Abraham Accords. Um, and as may be apparent, all of these varying definitions that I mentioned are aimed externally. They are intended to signal to the U.S. or to Europe or, or other countries that governments, especially in the broader Middle East, are willing to comply with their agendas, whether that's about Israel or counterterrorism. Um, and I just had an interesting conversation with James Dorsey of Singapore's Nanyang Technological University for Conversation 6, and he was contrasting this top-down form of so-called moderate Islam that tends to be prevalent in the Middle East uh, with a more bottom-up approach from Nahdlatul Ulama, or NU, which is an Indonesian Islamist group that is actually one of the largest and most influential Islamist movements in the world. And he was pointing out that NU is grappling with real theology in a way that Emirati or Saudi or Moroccan versions of moderate Islam do not. So in my, for my research, which focuses on the Middle East, moderate Islam is a largely cynical strategy that is largely aimed at external messaging. Um, whereas James would argue that in other contexts, for example, in Indonesia, there's actually more substance behind it. And, and just to follow up on that a little bit, uh, you wrote in the Washington Post that Muslim-majority governments that wish to be labeled moderate generally need to comply with the agenda of the United States. Therefore, the definition changes with U.S. policy goals. I think it's a very interesting observation. 
Do you think that the Trump administration played the role of, well, useful idiot in the politicization of the term? Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of the blockade of Qatar. Trump initially bought the line that Doha was the source of terror funding for violent jihadism. He effectively greenlighted the blockade with one of his infamous tweets. Um, What do you think? So I, I definitely think that these dynamics around efforts around messaging of who exactly was moderate or not moderate, as I was saying, those have shifted over time. And right, as we saw under Trump, the UAE being very effective at sort of signaling themselves as this bastion of moderate Islam and Saudi Arabia then jumping on that bandwagon as well. In contrast to Qatar, which historically had been seen as pursuing a much more, uh, you know, a policy that seemed perhaps much more in keeping with moderate Islam in in terms of its openness to um, hosting American educational institutions, kind of a a prioritization of, of knowledge. Also, we saw in terms of getting back to those questions of Islamic theology, um, they had Yusuf al-Qaradawi, who's a prominent Egyptian scholar who really emphasized the notion of wasatiya, which is often translated as moderation, but means sort of the, the concept of being in the middle, essentially, um, and which is in fact central to Islam, that both in the Quran and the Hadith, we have this emphasis on Islam as a middle way, as sort of a middle path. You even had the Prophet Muhammad, for example, um, telling his followers not to be overly extreme in a way that Christians at the time would do things like embrace celibacy, monks and nuns, for example. And then the Prophet Muhammad telling his followers, look, we don't need to be as crazy as those crazy Christians, you know, that you, that you can be a good Muslim, but still sort of in, engage in the life of the world and, and not pursue the sort of more cloistered existence that we tended to see in Christianity. So all that to say that that because Qatar had given a home and and a, a prominent you know resources and funding to this prominent um, cleric Al Qaradawi, they were seen as as really fostering uh, these notions of wasatiya and and again so called moderate Islam. But then after 2011, when suddenly Qatar was was seen as a threat by the UAE and Saudi Arabia because it was providing funding and support to various Islamist movements such as in Libya and in Egypt and Tunisia and elsewhere. And so for this reason, the the Emiratis and the Saudis decided Qatar just couldn't be tolerated anymore, that their the extent to which Qatar had pursued uh policy supporting Islamists was too big of a threat. And so as you said, Trump played the useful idiot in in greenlighting the the blockade of Qatar. Obviously now we've seen the uh, the Saudis showing somewhat more willingness than the Emiratis to return to to a normal relationship with the Qataris. The blockade has lifted with the Al-Ula agreement. Um, but I do think the Emiratis in particular continue to view the Qataris and all Islamist groups as as a potential threat. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, Kedadawi is is still, I mean, quite a controversial figure, as you said, uh, post twenty eleven. But but even before then, I can recall here in London the the mayor, the then mayor, getting into a a bit of a spot of bother because he had uh, sponsored Kedadawi coming to London. So uh, 
as I say, a bit of a controversial character, Karadawi. Certainly. And, you know, I, I think it, it is, it's somewhat frustrating as someone who, who has, you know, I, I am not a scholar of Islamic theology. I study these questions more from a political science perspective. But it, I, it is just interesting to see how these questions of Islam and theological Islamic questions were sort of taken up in non-Islamic contexts in places like London and places like the U.S., where the U.S. is trying to foster so-called moderate Islam while lacking much depth for what exactly that is supposed to mean, or an understanding of how when the U.S. is pushing for these sorts of concepts, it can be inherently delegitimizing because for many, many people, many the populations in much of the Middle East who already, with good reason, view the U.S. with suspicion in terms of U.S. foreign policy in the region and pursuit of violence and invasions, etc. So something that has U.S. fingerprints on it is going to be inherently delegitimizing. And so, for example, under the Obama administration, we saw many efforts to try to reach out to Muslim populations. We saw Obama's famous Cairo speech in June 2009, where he was trying to reset relations with the Muslim world. But I think what I've, what I've heard from people who were involved with those efforts, especially within the State Department, was that this outreach to Muslim communities tended to reify existing power structures, for example. So it was outreach to figures who were already relatively prominent, tended to be older, overwhelmingly male, um, and that didn't necessarily get into the spaces where there was more innovation happening, where you did have younger people, more marginalized people, female people who were questioning some of these existing religious hierarchies, some of this existing religious thinking. And so somewhat unintentionally, the U.S. actually helped to harden some of this sort of top-down, state-led, not innovative, not particularly even interesting um, notion of so-called moderate Islam, which in practice on the ground in many of these contexts in the Middle East is much more about reinforcing state authority. Uh, again, just kind of gets back to this fundamental lack of, of, under, of understanding that there's just insufficient nuance in what, what the U.S. has tried to do in terms of promoting so-called moderate Islam. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that, that, that lack of knowledge uh, really enables the weaponizing of the term. And I'm thinking of uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who back in 2017 in a Guardian uh, interview, um, the Guardian reported on very favorably at the time, uh, he said he was returning Saudi Arabia to moderate Islam, what he claimed was the Islam the kingdom had before 1979 and the Iranian Revolution. I mean, I'm just curious what you make of that claim, because you could call it a PR ploy, uh, ploy really, that uh, playing to what Western uh, powers want to hear. Or you could look at it the other way and say, well, he curbed, has curbed very significantly the power of conservative clerics, and he's altered uh, religious and social norms in the kingdom. Right. I mean, that Guardian article came out when MBS was being feted all over the world. You know, soon after that, he came to the U.S. in early 2018, as well as to the U.K., 
um, and and did this sort of charm tour. We had Thomas Friedman and various other prominent columnists famously just celebrating him as this reformer. Um, and then October 2018, Hashoji was murdered and, and this revitalized image that he'd been trying to cultivate of, of himself and of Saudi Arabia mostly came tumbling down. But you're... It is true that Mohammed bin Salman has altered certain policies in Saudi Arabia, but essentially he's Saudi Arabia was so far behind in terms of women's rights that what MBS has done is essentially just bring Saudi Arabia closer to policies in that we see in the rest of the Gulf, for example, which are are not particularly feminist. I mean, in many of these countries, women cannot pass their citizenship to their own children. I mean, in Saudi Arabia, there still remain quite onerous restrictions on, on women's kind of autonomy. So sure, he has made some changes, but it's because Saudi Arabia was coming from so far behind, particularly on women's rights. Um, he has cracked down on dissent. He has allowed no sort of liberalization of political spaces or, or media spaces or, you know, anything that could push back against his narrative. Um, so I, I think that although some changes have been made, uh, it's, it's partly because of where Saudi Arabia was coming from. And then in terms of his narrative about returning to a pre-1979 moderate Islam in Saudi Arabia, I mean, arguably, this this is part of what got Hashoji murdered, was that because he was close enough to the inner circle and was old enough to remember what things were like before 79 and was in a position had a, a loudspeaker essentially with his position as a columnist for the Washington Post that he really posed a threat to this narrative that MBS was trying to put forward um, in terms of the thought that pre-1979 Saudi Arabia was much more liberal and moderate and that he was trying to return Saudi Arabia to that time period and this was something that Hashoji uh, was was not going to to go along with that narrative. I mean, on the other hand, there was a shift after 79. It wasn't so much about the Iranian revolution as it was about the seizure of the Grand Mosque in Mecca and the the critique leveled by those I mean they they were terrorists, but these these individuals who were saying that the Al Saud had betrayed Islam and that they wanted to install a properly Islamic government in Saudi Arabia. And so you saw the House of Saud decide that they needed to to tack much further towards religious conservatism in order to to push back against those forces within the kingdom that were frustrated. But to get back to the point about MBS changing all that, I mean, he has not really gone after the religious establishment. You know, the High Council of Ulama remain in power. You know, many of these individuals are the same who have advanced truly nonsensical interpretations of Islam as things like women driving would harm their reproductive organs. You know, all, all of these sort of supposedly religiously based justifications for Saudi policies. 
And instead, the people that he has gone after are independent voices that could, that again, could have threatened his narrative. People like Salman al-Auda, for example, who, uh, who has languished in jail since, uh, I believe, September of 2017. Um, and, and many other figures who, who had been part of the movement in, in the 90s and later the the early 2000s, trying to push for a more representative government in Saudi Arabia, trying to push for some shifts within the Saudi interpretation of Islam. Um, many of these people have massive social media followings. And so for this reason, Mohammed bin Salman saw them as a threat. So, so again, and it just gets back to your point about the ignorance here that kind of from the outside, you know, the United States that if, it, if an average American is paying attention, they say, oh, he, he threw some clerics in jail. Like, that must mean he's cracking down and, and, you know, Saudi Arabia is liberalizing. But there's just not enough of an understanding of what exactly is happening, who it is that he's targeting, and who is he allowing to, to maintain their positions of power. Now, to be clear, he those individuals who are members of the religious establishment have been somewhat muzzled. You know, he, he is not allowing them to come out with these same sort of statements anymore. Um, and, and I don't anticipate that they will because we have seen what happens, um, to people who, who threaten this narrative of him as the great reformer. Um, I think one other crucial point to make about Mohammed bin Salman is the extent to which he is building upon policies that were started by King Abdullah. Um, efforts made in particular, uh, of particular importance, is the King Abdullah Scholarship Program, which sent hundreds of thousands of young Saudis to study abroad. And it's these, it, these young people who are, who make up the base of MBS's support because they do want their country to change. And in general, I, I do think it is important to, to distinguish between the actions of Mohammed bin Salman, who has demonstrated he is, is, um, brutal and bloodthirsty and the, the Saudi people themselves who do deserve uh, uh, many, many changes, um, that they're, they have not been able to exert any sort of, um, influence on what happens in their government. I mean, Saudi Arabia remains a brutal dictatorship, but that, you know, these, the, many of these young people do support some of, you know, much of what he's doing because they see it as a means of making Saudi Arabia more normal was what young Saudis would say to me when I was there. They want a more normal country. Mm. Yeah. And, and, but, but you're quite right to make the point about how ruthlessly he's crushed dissent the Saudi prisons are, are filled with political prisoners, uh, prisoners of conscience. And of course, the, his involvement in the killing of Jamal Hashoshi, um, that's not moderate, obviously. Uh, but let's look at the UAE and specifically Mohammed bin Zayed, the Abu Dhabi crown prince and de facto ruler, who one could say has weaponized the term to target in particular the Muslim Brotherhood. But he's broadened that out quite effectively in pursuing his ambitions in the region. So moderate Islam for him has become a very effective tool. Yes. Uh, the UAE under MBZ has been far more clever about pursuing so-called moderate Islam than the Saudis. Uh, this is partly because they do have actual policies in place, things like allowing other religions to be practiced in the UAE that 
is not tolerated in Saudi Arabia. Um, they established a ministry of tolerance in 2017. They host um, prominent Mauritanian cleric Mohammed bin Beya, who's been involved in, uh, again, much of this is, is about kind of promoting this image of moderate Islam. So hosting Pope Francis in 2019, for example, opening a synagogue. Um, they've invited the, the Mormons to build a temple in the UAE. So they're very clever about this messaging, but, but they do also back it up to a certain extent with, with some policies. And I think part of the reason they're able to do this is because the Emirati population is quite small, they're very well taken care of, and they're very heavily surveilled. Um, whereas for Mohammed bin Salman, he has a major task on his hands to try to transform the Saudi economy in a way that actually provides people with jobs and opportunities um, that, that are, are not merely sinecures work, working at, at government ministries but not actually doing anything and, and that pay enough that would allow all their female relatives to stay at home and not work. Um, so MBS has this large population and... That, that he's made very big promises to. And so he, he deals with more um, possibility of public pushback, which is, again, is part of, I think, why he's engaged in such extreme levels of repression. But he also knows that things like policies that the UAE has pursued, like normalizing with Israel, that they're able to do largely because they do have their population under control. MBS knows that that could be um, it, it likely to, to generate massive levels of public outcry in Saudi Arabia and to an extent that he may not be able to control. So, so again, I think the UAE has been more effective in this partly because A, they, they do implement some real policies and B, they can pursue certain policies without fearing the, that the backlash would be such that it could actually threaten them. It, it, it is, again, just getting back to sort of this general lack of nuanced understanding that the UAE and Saudi Arabia could claim to be promoting so-called moderate Islam, and yet at the same time brutally going after any sort of alternative understanding of Islam or any sort of Islamic pluralism, again, because they see that as, as potentially threatening. Yeah, well, that's that's the point, isn't it? And and you mentioned the Ministry of Tolerance. Uh, a friend of mine, Ahmed Mansour, uh, is in jail, uh, sentenced to ten years for daring to criticize the state. So, <laughs> tolerance has its limits, clearly, in in both the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Really, there there is no tolerance of criticism of either the ruling families or of uh, pretty much anything that the leadership might choose to do. Yeah. That's a contradiction that did not trouble Donald Trump one whit. But should it be of concern to the Biden administration, which, of course, has said, you know, we've got a different take here. Our American values will be part of how we approach uh, the Middle East in particular uh, in terms of human rights. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I am very um hopeful that that might happen, but remain skeptical, simply because the United States has long talked about the need for 
greater democracy in the Middle East, the need to pursue human rights, and yet almost never have those actually guided U.S. policy towards the region. You know, instead, we see ongoing huge amounts of military support going to Israel, uh, then followed by Egypt, followed by Jordan, as well as massive, massive arms sales to Saudi Arabia, to the UAE, uh, to the other members of the GCC as well. And all of these countries routinely pursue massive human rights violations. Um, it's, it's just the way they govern. And, and I'm including Israel in that. And so the notion that Biden is actually going to put human rights or democracy front and center of his policy, I have yet to see much evidence of that. I do want to affirm that I, I, I think that they should, in fact, do that. And things like uh, conditioning aid to Israel or to Egypt um, is one way of going about that. I think that would be a first step. We may need to start <laughs> the conversation with conditioning aid and then perhaps move on from there to further questioning of to what extent should the U.S. continue to flood this region with weapons and military aid because we've seen the effects of it. We've seen Saudi Arabia use these weapons that we've you know, sold to them for decades to brutalize Yemen. Indeed, yeah. And, and of course, the moderate Islam, that, that, that top-down version of it is, is quite comfortable, isn't it, for the uh, military-industrial complex and, and the selling of weapons, as you say, because it, it kind of justifies um, s sending these uh, weapons to these authoritarian regimes. I, I wanted to move on to normalization and, and this whole, really, uh, you have to say it, uh, it was a coup for Donald Trump and Jared Kushner to get the Emiratis and the Bahrainis and then subsequently Sudan and Morocco to uh, recognize Israel. Uh, how comfortably does that fit under the umbrella of moderate Islam? Because it's being marketed as a, as a prime example of the success of moderate Islam. Yes. And, you know, as, as I said, kind of at the beginning, in terms of the definition of moderate Islam, pre 9-11 being more closely tied to countries that were willing to adopt peace treaties with Israel, again, Egypt and Jordan. And right, as you said, under Trump, it's a great signal for the UAE and, and then the other signatories to the Abraham Accords to to be able to show, look, United States, we are going fully along with your program of protecting and supporting Israel. And, and we're not really seeing much of a change under the Biden administration. I mean, you know, the sort of bipartisan consensus on supporting Israel, I think, was undermined a little bit under Trump because he pursued it so blatantly and and was so opposed to any notion that the Palestinians had any rights at all or or you know had any made any effort towards trying to actually resolve the, the question of Palestine um, and that it was simply about you know getting the Emiratis and the Israelis to 
normalize, which in effect was just saying out loud the reality on the ground, which was that these countries have have had relatively normal, if um, quiet, relations for quite a while now. Uh, similar, I mean, same could be said for the Saudis, the, especially under Netanyahu. Um, we we saw, you know, the Saudis and Israelis really being on the same side, especially in terms of Iran. So, indeed, now we are seeing normalization with Israel as kind of the latest example of how you need to signal your compliance with the U.S. agenda in the Middle East. And like the rest of the top-down moderate Islam project, it has very little to do with what people actually want or believe, and also has very little to do with Islam itself, which again goes back to some of what we were saying at the beginning about how this is just about signaling and sort of attaching this label to these various policies when it is beneficial for the, the politicians that are saying it, but doesn't actually connect to the lived experience of Muslims and, you know, people on the ground who may have questions about their religion, who, who, you know, I, I guess the, the point I want to make is the reason religion continues to be such a powerful force in the lives of so many is because it serves people's needs. It meets emotional needs, spiritual needs. And so when you have a, this top-down form of religion coming out of state-controlled mosques and state-produced textbooks, that treats as suspect any other interpretation of religion because it then it gets labeled as being potentially related to terrorism or violence. That is a, a brittle and not dynamic form of religion. And so it's, it's not going to last. I mean, religion survives and is powerful because it adapts to what people need. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Anel Shaleen, a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute in Washington, D.C. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a special rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. Sign up to the free trial. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.